So we can't go from zero to 100% renewable and to no emission to net zero all in one step. We simply do not have the money that's needed to do this all at once. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. If you've been enjoying the program, please take two minutes to give us a review on iTunes with a five-star rating, which we'd greatly appreciate. Today, we're joined by Wolfgang Bauer, Distinguished Professor at Michigan State University, to discuss the incredible renewable energy journey that he's been a part of and, in fact, led at Michigan State University. Wolfgang's also a very active member of the Smart Energy Decisions Advisory Board, and we're deeply indebted and grateful for his participation and leadership with that group. Wolfgang, to get started, why don't you tell us a little about your background, your your journey, and what you're doing today at uh, Michigan State? Thank you, John. I've been at Michigan State University for, it's hard to believe, but 34 years I grew up in Germany in a little farm town, and actually uh, my last name, Bauer, actually means farmer in Germany, and for many generations, that's what we did. And then I was the black sheep of the family and studied physics, (laughs) and I came to the U.S. in 1982. Basically, I stuck around because I met my wife at the University of Washington, and uh, I thought, what a great country that have amazing people like my wife, and so I, I stayed here. And 1988, I joined the faculty at Michigan State University, and I had various administrative roles through the decades. And the one that meant most to me was associate vice president in charge of the energy transition. Well, that was an important role, and obviously we're going to talk a lot more about what you accomplished in that role here during the the podcast. And I mean, you and I have gotten to know one another quite well, and one of the things that impressed me, Wolfgang, when you first, when you and I first talked is that you're not purely an academic. You and your family have had active commercial interest in European energy markets. Why don't you uh, tell us a little about that background and your and, and your family's experience in Europe in European energy markets? Yes, that's correct. So I I already mentioned I grew up on a farm and my younger brother took over the farm from our parents. And then there was an opportunity to have a real positive impact. In, In many respects, Germany is ahead of the United States in the transition to renewable energy simply because it's a much more crowded place. And it's a country that does not have the same type of fossil fuel resources that the U.S. has. And so a lot of energy has to be imported. And nuclear energy in particular has a bad reputation in Germany. And so for the last, I would say, 10, 20 years, the the country as a whole 
has placed a big bet on renewable energies. And of course, there's solar and of course, there's wind, but there's also biomass. And that in particular is what my brothers and I have invested in. So the idea is that we grow biomass, in this case, just corn in the fall. We shred it and put it in big silos. And then we mix it with uh, cow excrements and pig excrements and put this into an anaerobic digester and produce biogas from this, which we then convert in reciprocating internal combustion engines into electricity and heat. And that heat is not just a useless byproduct. We can do things like one of our engines is located next to a public pool and we provide heat for the swimming pool year-round. This was, let's say, just a contribution to making the, the planets more habitable for future generations. But most recently, with the Russian war of aggression in the Ukraine and their blocking of gas supplies for Western Europe, this has also proved to be a national security issue for Germany. And so these biogas power plants that exist all over the country now contribute to replenishing the natural gas supply that's not happening from Russia anymore. Fascinating. It's interesting because it sounds like based on your experience back in Germany, there are a number of things that you've actually done at uh, MSU on a larger scale, of course. So Transitioning to talking about MSU, give us an overview of the university itself. I know it's it's obviously one of the largest universities in the nation and a complex operation. Give us a sense for the size and scope and some of the background on Michigan State. So Michigan State University is uh, the largest university in Michigan. We have over 60,000 students, uh, about 50,000 undergraduates and the rest graduate students. We were founded as the premier land-grant university in 1855. We are a member of the American Association of Universities. This is uh, the top 60 or so research universities in North America. There's a couple of Canadian universities also. Typically, in these mm -hmm. international rankings, we're one of the top 100 universities in the world. Our campus is contiguous and is about 5,500 acres or so, so 21 square kilometers for your metric unit listeners. And we have our own power plant on campus. So our entire campus is a microgrid for which we supply the energy, the, the electricity ourselves. What we uh, import onto campus is natural gas that we then process into electricity and heat. So this is a living learning lab with our own cogent facilities. And we have been producing our own electricity since 1894. And we've retained this right. And Michigan is a regulated state. But since we were there first, we have retained the right to generate our own electricity through the decades and centuries. Interesting. And from a power generation standpoint, when you gave your presentation on renewable, Michigan State's renewable energy journey at our June Renewable Energy Forum, you presented a really interesting chart on the history of power generation at MSU. 
Can you give us some background on that history of power generation? Yes. So in 1882, we remember we were founded in 1855, and basically each building at the time was heated individually through wood firing in you know fireplaces. And that turned out to be a problem in some of these buildings that burned down. And so in 1882, the decision was made to have a, a central boiler house that would then supply the heat to the other buildings. And this was supplanted in 1894 by the first power plant that was partially electrifying the campus. Again, all built on wood. Mm -hmm. The whole campus was built basically on a, a huge forest and swamp. And actually part of the early tuition payments that students were asked to make was that they had to provide help with rooting up the stumps of the trees and then converting them to firewood. So in 1894, our first power plant was all wood burning. In 1904, that changed when we were connected to the railroad and were able to import coal. So our second power plant was built in 1904. And since then, we were exclusively coal fired through a third power plant in 1921 and then a fourth power plant in 1948, which was built right next to the football stadium, which only was retired in 1965 and then sat there unused and was only converted three years ago into a new STEM education building, which is actually a, a real showcase of technology that we have now. So in 1965, the TB Simon power plant was built and it was really a leading power plant in the nation because it implemented this cogen principle to the fullest extent. Water was heated in boilers to 900 PSI or so, then run over steam turbines, and the relatively low-pressure 90 PSI steam was then piped through an underground network of tunnels all over campus to heat buildings and provide autoclave heat and so on. This actually lasted until 2017 when we terminated coal firing on our campus. And since then, we have only relied on natural gas as a fossil fuel. And then just this year, a new power plant became operational that helps with a greater efficiency because it turns out that you know, on paper, cogen looks fantastic. And if you can make use of all the steam that you co-generate with the electricity, then you can achieve overall efficiencies between 65 and 70%. But the truth of the matter is that, especially in shoulder seasons, you know, in spring and in the fall, you really have very little use for the steam. You can't use it for building heating because you don't need it. And also what we had for the summer was absorption chillers to make use of the steam for air conditioning. And even that there in the spring and in the fall, there's no, no reason to have that either. So most of the steam then went up cooling towers. And that reduced our efficiency drastically to 30% or below. And so with a new Recip engine power plant, that is a 30 megawatt power plant, we're getting the efficiency up to the mid 
and that saves an incredible amount of CO2 from going into the environment and also saves us very significant amounts of money each year now. Yeah, it's interesting how there's been this ongoing development and evolution and you were entirely, you've been entirely off coal now for five years, which is excellent. So the whole, the idea of transition and evolution is is really in keeping with the history of the university and the most recent, I guess, manifestation of that is the energy transition plan that you've obviously been very actively involved in developing and shepherding. Before we get into details of the energy transition plan, Wolfgang, I know you've talked about the theory of everything as it relates to energy and I did want our, our our listeners to get the benefit of hearing your uh, point of view on that. Yeah, so this theory of everything is something that physicists like to talk about, especially particle physicists. And I have also applied that to the theory of energy. And, you know, Stephen Hawking said, he, he wrote this book, A Brief History of Time. And he wrote in there that, he was aware that he would lose half of his readership if he was mentioning any equation. And so in my public talks, I take this risk of losing half of my audience by giving them one equation. (laughs) And that equation is simply energy is money, E equals dollar. And we have to keep that in mind with everything that we do. We can't just say, oh, let's throw a whole bunch of money at getting greener and employing more renewable power and saving emissions. No, we have to also make sure that we're saving energy at the same time. And uh, with saving energy and my equation, energy is equal money, you're saving money. And then it all makes sense. If you can make an energy transition where not only you're able to produce fewer emissions, but where you also save money at the same time, then it's a win-win situation that everybody can get behind. Well, listen, I think that that balanced approach of not only the focus on conversion to renewables, but the focus on doing it economically, I think is one of the reasons that MSU has been as successful as it's been. And it's an important lesson, I think, for everyone to consider. The energy transition plan at at MSU, my understanding is it it was approved by the board in 2012. It's, It's a very compelling and sweeping plan. Talk to us now about the energy transition plan at MSU. Yes, I became aware of uh, these efforts to think about an energy transition in 2010. And uh, then I was the chairperson of the Department of Physics and Astronomy, and I thought, oh, the the physicists should have some kind of input into this. And so I uh, volunteered to be on this committee, and I became one of the lead authors of the energy transition plan. We worked on this for two years. We We tried to get as broad a participation from across the, not just Michigan State University itself, but from the wider community. And so we we conducted public forums and we had write-in campaigns and we tried to reflect as wide an array of opinions as we could, all with the idea that we needed to eventually have a transition 
of MSU to 100% renewable energy. And so this idea of a living and learning laboratory is absolutely key, where we allow our students to participate in this, learn from these processes, and then carry the knowledge gained into their future careers, into their future employment situations, and into their communities. So we wanted to lead by example and create partnerships with other entities. And the goal was to improve, yes, to improve the physical environment of MSU itself and the surrounding communities. And then as a top 100 university in the world, you want to also show leadership. And so we, we had the goal to become an educational leader in energy. And of course, we are a research university. And so we needed to make sure that we invest in sustainable energy research and development. So this was, as you mentioned, approved by our board of trustees in April of 2012. So we have the first 10 years to look back on. And we set very, very specific goals. We wanted to have very concrete steps from 2015, 20, 25, 30, and so on, where we slowly increase the campus renewable energy fraction and reduce the greenhouse gas emission you know, in measurable steps. So we can't go from zero to 100% renewable and to no emission to net zero all in one step. We simply do not have the money that's needed to do this all at once. But if we do this incrementally and save money in our energy portfolio at each step where we add more and more renewables, then this is very much doable without harming the business case for the rest of our enterprise. Interesting. So this, it's a measured approach. You have interim targets set up. And I think it might be interesting to talk about some specific projects in that context, maybe a previous project, something that's recently wrapped up, and maybe a project into the future that you're excited about. For a past project, I know the the solar carport that you did was very ambitious. And at the time, it may have been the largest solar carport in the country. Tell us a little bit about that solar carport project, which is unlike any other that, that I'm familiar with. Yeah, so we have a, an all-of-the-above approach. We look at our waste stream. So we have a, a recycling center and surplus store. For example, I bought a, a used bicycle there for $10 that somebody else had given up and left over the winter. And I bought that for $10 and touched it up a little bit and rode it around for quite a bit of time. So we're, we're trying to do recycling contracts where we can be sure that waste stream is actually converted into usable products in the end and, and not just thrown out. So there's no greenwashing there. We have an organic waste composting facility for lawn clippings and leaves and so on. We also looked into geothermal arrays that hasn't bottomed out as we had thought. But, you know, this is all part of the research environment. Sometimes you reach dead ends. I, I haven't given up on geothermal yet, but the one that we built did not work. We have an anaerobic digester, which was actually a carbon copy of one of the biogas power plants that my brothers and I built in Germany. So we just brought the developer over 
and have had him build a carbon copy of, of this facility. And this is processing food waste from our cafeteria system. It also uses cow manure from our College of Agriculture. It reduces the need for artificial fertilizer on the fields that the College of Agriculture processes, and it produces electricity and, and heat. We also have demand reduction programs. Our previous governor, Snyder, used to say, the greenest energy is the energy you do not use. And I completely agree with that. And so our office invested up to $10 million per year in energy conservation measures. And the idea was just, if you can show that there is an ROI time of five years or less, we'll give you the money and then we'll, we'll split the savings in energy between the central administration that can then be reinvested and the unit that made these improvements. We participate in the Department of Energy's Better Building Challenge and in their Data Center Challenge. So the Data Center is a, is a particularly good example. When my team counted 74 different data centers on our campus, and every one of them was not very efficient. You know, it needed also personnel to make sure that when the computers crash at three in the morning, there's somebody there to restart them. When the chillers don't work, somebody needs to call the repairs and so on. And their power utilization efficiency was mediocre to terrible, depending on the particular data center. So we said, okay, let's get rid of all these small data centers you know, in the physics department, in the chemistry department, engineering college, in the football stadium, in the College of Social Science, you know, a huge number of them, and put them all into a central data center that we can then make much more efficient. Mm -hmm. And we did this three years ago, and we're saving about 10,000 megawatt hours of electricity per year for the same compute capacity but a m much more efficient way to cool the computers. We also uh, implemented something which we call Spartan treasure hunts in partnership with GE and also Toyota, where we go building by building and have weekend workshops where our infrastructure experts get together with a few of the people that inhabit and run these buildings and try to see if we can find energy conservation measures. And there are many useful examples where we identified things where set points were wrong for the air conditioning systems, where we were able to install uh, motion detectors in elevators or bathrooms. And so there were a huge number of individual small measures implemented, but when you add them all up, they make a very sizable contribution. Yeah. And that brings me to the solar arrays. Yes, yes, yes. We said, okay, let's have something that's visible on our campus that can get our students excited about renewable power production. And that, again, makes a sizable contribution to our renewable energy portfolio while at the same time, and this is most important, while at the same time saving money. And the way that we did this was we ran a competition. We had 42 entries, and we picked the one that was most suitable for our needs. That was a solar carport array, which covers 5,000 parking spots. 
And on 45 acres of parking lots, it consists out of uh, 40,000 solar panels that have uh, a combined 13.4 megawatt DC power output, which translates into 12.5 megawatt, almost actually 11 megawatt of AC peak power. This generates approximately 15,000 megawatt hours of solar energy per year. And it's done as a power purchase agreement. So we didn't have to put any capital down up front. Our partner organizations, Innovator Solar and Altera Power Corp, put the capital down. They made all the investment and then we let them lease the land for, you know, a nominal value of $1 for 25 years. And for those 25 years, we committed to buy every single kilowatt hour that these arrays will produce at a fixed price. And, well, we don't know how energy prices will develop, but what we simply did, what I did to make projections is just to use the inflation figures that the Energy Information Agency of the U.S. Department of Energy publishes. And that, at the time, was assuming a 2.1% annual inflation rate. Mm -hmm. And with those assumptions, these arrays will save us approximately 10 million of electricity costs over the 25-year duration. Now, that turns out to be grossly underestimating the savings. Sure. Because we have entered a time of much higher inflation, in particular over the energy prices. When we made these calculations, we assumed that natural gas prices would stay as low as they were at the time, you know, $2.20, $2.30 or so for a thousand cubic foot of natural gas. With the war in Ukraine, energy prices in, in particular in Europe have skyrocketed. And since we have completed in the United States these liquid natural gas export terminals, that now also has a very strong effect on natural gas prices, on energy prices in the U.S. So what initially looked like $10 million in energy savings will, will actually turn out to be much higher. And I don't know how much higher, hopefully not too much higher, because inflation is something that's uh, making all of us suffer, really. But it will be significantly higher than $10 million in savings. Yeah, it's a great project. And in looking at some of the pictures that you've shared previously, it's massive. And it's over several different parts of the campus, which is really fascinating. So from this project, which is a great example of a previous project. I know you've got even bigger plans in store for a very large new solar project that's yet to commence, but it's also quite ambitious. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so now that we have convinced everybody in our administration that it makes sense to invest in solar energy, even as far north as Michigan in the country. And by the way, you know, latitude, of course, makes a, a big difference, but not as big as, as people in generally assume. So we are getting, yes, less solar than Arizona, for example, but only about 15% less. So this is definitely doable all over the country. But now that we're convinced of these benefits, we have designs for a new 20 megawatt array ground mount that's uh, significantly lower capital uh, needed. And so we can also get the kilowatt hour price significantly lower. 
We have the advantage that we have a 5,500-acre campus that has a lot of land that can be used for these purposes. So we identified uh, 110 acres of meadows. When I say ground mound, that still means about four feet off the ground. And it's not a solid cover of the land because all these solar panels have to be tilted and they don't want to be in each other's shade. And so between these solar panels, there's still significant space for vegetation. And we can have ample room to have grass grow under there that sheep can graze on. And we will also have pollinator field for, you know, bees and so on. So wildflowers that pollinators can enjoy. This is a project that was put on hold by COVID, but we will complete this project hopefully in a year. Incidentally, it was kickstarted at one of your events, Smart Energy Decisions event in Pontevedra a couple of years ago. And there was lots of interest expressed by participants in the event. And and one of the vendors at the event, Next Era, actually won the bid process and will again build this as a power purchase agreement with us. That's awesome. Well, I can't wait when this is off the ground and completed to publish this as a as a case study from some of the good things that happened at our events, Wolfgang. And it's it's just awesome to see how you set this initial goal, which back in 2012, which was ambitious. You've continued to evolve. You've continued to develop larger and larger projects. I hope that the overall plan and the specific projects you've executed are going to prove to be inspiring to other higher ed institutions that are in our community. I love the fact that you uh, <laughs> kind of replicated some of the things that you did in Europe here on on the MSU campus, which which I think is 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 that also the case with the reciprocal internal combustion engine project that I believe you recently completed? To a certain degree, yes, it is. So. This new power plant consists out of uh, three recip engines, each of about 10 megawatt electrical output. Mm -hmm. Those are an order of magnitude larger than the engines that we use in the biogas power plants, which are each on the order of one megawatt. But it's the same principle. And right now, it's the most cost-effective way to convert gas into electricity. You can also, for example, do fuel cells, but the maintenance is significantly more expensive. And again, energy is money, right? And so the more money I can save, the better it is for our energy portfolio and the better it is for our emission scenario and the better it is for the planet overall. This has been our guiding principle. So from 2006 or so, we measured our overall emissions of the university as almost 600,000 tons of CO2. And just by switching in 2016 to all natural gas and completely terminating coal firing, we saved almost a quarter million tons of CO2 emissions without giving up anything else. Hmm. Having the same power output, even with still using fossil fuels, this switching out of coal into natural gas 
saved a quarter million tons. That digester then also saved on the order of 20,000 tons of emissions. The solar carport array uh, on the same order, also 20,000 tons. This new rice power plant that has just become operational actually saves 50,000 tons of CO2. And the new 20 megawatt solar array will save an additional 40,000 tons. And so overall, we were able to reduce our CO2 emissions by almost two-thirds already, exceeding the marks that we had set in our energy transition plan. And so we went down from close to 600,000 tons to just a little over 200,000 tons of CO2 emissions, all the while by over those 15 years from 2006 to 2021, increasing our footprint in our building footprint by, well, a couple of million square feet and actually by uh, building a new national lab on our campus, the so-called FRIP facility for rare isotope beams, that is extremely power hungry. It consumes an average of more than 10 megawatt. So we added to our electricity consumption, but we drastically reduced our CO2 output at the same time. And we saved money in our energy expenses. Wolfgang, in a nutshell, that's what smart energy decisions is all about, trying to help people to reduce their emissions in an environment of increased use and at the same time reducing cost. You are a poster child for what we're trying to help people do. And congratulations on the great work that you've done, the accomplishments, and what I know will continue to be great results in your collective efforts at MSU. Thank you. And let's not forget how your organization, Smart Energy Decisions, has helped us in this process. So this is really essential. We are always looking for partners, and you have facilitated this looking for partners process in the most efficient way. I I really think that these meetings that you're organizing are extremely beneficial to accomplish what everybody needs to do, saving money while saving the planet. Well, thank you, Wolfgang. That's very generous to you, and I appreciate that. So this is the part of Smart Energy Voices that I, I frankly like the most, where we get to learn a little more about our, about our guests. And we're going to transition from talking about the energy accomplishments and the energy journey to really talking more about, about you, Wolfgang. So a couple questions about you that will also give our listeners a better sense for who you are. Wolfgang, what would you say drives you? Let me say what doesn't drive me. <laughs> what doesn't drive me is money, really, for my own personal income. What drives me is, you know, I have three children. They're in their early 20s to our oldest daughter is 30 now. And I would like to leave the world in a better shape for them than what what we founded in our generation. And I think this is possible. Set a good example for future generations. Make sure that we leave really the entire planet in a better shape than what we have founded. We have the technology now that we can do this. And so it's really important to keep our eyes on the goal that we can become energy independent in this country and we can do it in a way that 
improves the environment. And if deployed properly, that enhances all of our well-being and at the same time makes us more wealthy. You can look across the world in every country that you can name and you can compute the wealth of these countries per person and you can also compute the energy consumption per person. And then what you see is there's a strong correlation between the two. The more energy a country consumes, the more wealthy it is. And of course, the U.S. is one of the wealthiest countries and also one of the biggest energy hogs. And the question is, can we go on like this by burning fossil fuels? And the answer is a very solid no. Global warming is real, but there's also a finite supply of fossil fuels. And so in order to secure wealth for future generations, for my children, for your children, for everybody else's children and grandchildren in my case now, we have to reorient our economy so that we can bank on renewable power production. And, you know, the sun is the great nuclear reactor in the sky and gives it to us for free. So not, why not use it? I, you know, that doesn't really tell you very much about me, but that's sort of my general philosophy about life. I think it says a lot, and it's a common theme and value and sense of purpose and mission that I think is present within our community and that people are genuinely trying to make the world a better place and leave things in better condition for their families. What do you consider to be your greatest accomplishment, Wolfgang? This emissions reduction from 600,000 tons to 200,000 tons per year, I think that's my biggest contribution to the university. At the same time, we have saved low single-digit million dollars per year in our energy portfolio by doing that for the university. So I, that's the one I'm most proud of. Even if it's not all renewable energy, uh, you know, it's also making more efficient use of fossil fuel resources, but energy saved is energy gained. And so energy gained means also money gained. And so we have made significant savings for the university while reducing our emissions by pretty much two-thirds. And I think that's, that's the one that I'm most proud of. That's excellent. Who's had the greatest impact on your career? Another way to talk and think about that is kind of who do you admire most? So you can take it from either direction. The person who gave me the greatest push in the right directions is Steve Kunin. I worked with him when he was my uh, postdoctoral mentor when I was at Caltech. He later became provost at Caltech and then made a great career transition to become the chief scientist at BP. So he showed me that, uh, you know, you're not set into your nuclear physics track and you have to stay there forever, but you can sort of make a jump to other things that are really meaningful and have great contributions, which is what he did. And, and in particular, he got me into this thinking about renewable energies. When he was chief scientist at BP, maybe 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, he assembled these weekend study sessions where 
he and his team invited some authors of papers with far out solutions for renewable energies and, and mitigation of global warming and put them through stress tests. And I was one of the people that he had selected to put these authors through their stress tests where we were encouraged to ask uncomfortable questions and, and really battle out the ideas and see what really was holding water and what could be invested in. And so he exposed me to a whole bunch of renewable energy ideas and I benefited greatly from that. And then I decided, hey, I can also make contributions in this field. That's fascinating. I don't know that I'd want to be on the other end of a stress test where you were uh, <laughs> where you were challenging things. That's a great story. So, Wolfgang, at at the end of the day, what what impact would you like to leave on the on the industry? Well, I would like to show, in particular, to other educational institutions because these are sort of our competitors and peers. I would like to show that you can make this transition to 100% renewable energy, to net zero, in a way that is not only not harming your business case, but advances it. You can save money while saving the planet at the same time. If I can show that to my own university and to our peers and to the wider in industry overall, then I think I have achieved what I set out to do. That's super. Well, listen, you've already contributed greatly, and I hope that this uh, episode of Smart Energy Voices helps spread the word on that great work that you've done and helps in that, that mission and that goal that you have to, to have an impact on the industry. So, Wolfgang, thank you so much for joining me today on Smart Energy Voices. I, I appreciate your your mentorship as one of our advisory board members and your friendship personally, and really look forward to following your ongoing progress at uh, Michigan State. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to voice what I really think are important things that uh, need to be carried into a wider community. It's our pleasure, and it's why why we're here. So to our listeners, thanks for engaging with our content and being a part of this really fascinating episode of Smart Energy Voices. If you've enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn more about how you can become a part of our next event, visit our website, smartenergydecisions.com. We're excited about sharing conversations with leaders of the energy transition like Wolfgang in this podcast on our website and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. 
To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. 